You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to this episode of The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today on the program, we have a unique opportunity to to talk to Lance Corporal Jackson, as he was referred to in a previous episode. Jackson, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Yes, uh, actually, my real name is Joseph Newman, but I guess I was called Lance Corporal Jackson. Uh, Thank you for having me on. We heard about your story uh, a few episodes ago with Carl Blanke, who was your platoon commander at the time during the invasion. I want to get your sense of who you were in the spring of 2003, what you were doing, how you wound up in the Marine Corps, and the perspective of combat from a junior Marine that's going to help inform our audience about what your expectations were of leadership from your NCOs and from your officers. But before we do all of that, what brought you into the Marine Corps? So an opportunity to get out, life skills, and a pretty convincing recruiter, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, because he set me up. He said, I can play basketball for four years and get paid. I'm like, I can do what? And he told me, I'm like, oh, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> but then I, I get to the fleet. I was like, when's the basketball tryouts? So it's like, your recruiter lied to you. I'm like, what? It's like, yeah, that's what they do. They find out your hobbies, your interests, and they play on that. And they, once they get you signed up, I'm like, oh, man. But I, I don't 
if I could go back, I'll still do it. Even without using basketball, I'll still sign up. Now, you went infantry. Did you come in as a machine gunner, or did you just come in, open infantry, and you got that to the school of infantry? So once, after boot camp, we got to SOI. We're, we're in formation. They start calling names. They get to my name. It's like Newman, 0331. I'm like, uh, what is a 31? Because I didn't realize what it was. And someone's like, it's a machine gun. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I was supposed to be infantry. And it's like, this is infantry. I'm like, huh? And it's like, yeah, it's just a machine gunner. Either you're going to be a heavy machine gunner or you're going to be signed to a line company with a medium light machine gun. I'm like, okay. You know, as long as I'm doing my job I signed up for and not you sending me to do something else. It's like, nah, it's 0300. It goes, it's a spectrum. It's just not, it's 0300. There's many different jobs. I'm like, all right. As I'm going through SOI and working with the different machine guns, I was like, please send me to a line company. I do not want to have to carry the Mark 19 or the 50 Cal for no more than a mile. I wasn't trying to carry those weapons. So I got lucky. They sent me to Charlie Company 15, which I didn't know that there's different companies. I was never informed, you know, boat company, Hilo, anything like that. So there's like, you Hilo company. I'm like, uh, what? It's like, you fly around helicopters. So I'm like, okay. You know, I just accepted everything. You know, I'm like, it's what I got to do. I do it. When you got to the fleet, what were your first experiences like? It wasn't hard or challenging. It was just, I felt it was more like being a boot camp again when I first got there. Because a lot of the senior Marines that were getting out, they were picked on us boots, per se, once we got there. And I didn't like it. And I was like, you know, why are you making me suffer? Because this fat kid can't run. I'm like, that's not my problem. I can run. I can, everything you're making me do, I can do. Just because he can't do it, you know, make us suffer. Then it didn't click into later on when I, when I became a Lance and I was getting ready to get out. And I noticed it. I'm like, this is why they did it, to get us prepared for leadership and make sure you're just strong as your weakest link. So you have to motivate everybody somehow, some way to get that person up to par. And, you know, I wasn't as bad, but there was times where I wanted to, I was like, no, I can't be that way. You know, I, I was just me, you know, when the new Marines came in to the fleet, they looked at me and it's like, Oh, don't look at Newman. He's a shit back. He's a shit back. I'm like, yeah, but I average almost a 298 PFT. Expert pistol, never fallen out of hike, never fallen out of the run. Yeah, I'd be the shit back, but when it comes to doing my job, I'm one of the best people to do it. So, you know, looks are deceiving. When we talked to Carl, he talked about the workup to go to Iraq. What was that like from your perspective? So for me, I really didn't do the workup because uh, in 2002, I had ankle surgery in the summer of 2002. I had ankle surgery. So I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to deploy. Um, so once I was able to start training, at, I was kind of limited what I was able to do. So the running, no, I had to limit how much I ran no, or how intense I would do it. Um, the hiking, I couldn't hike because it wasn't sure if the weight, I'll be able to handle the weight on my back and my ankle give out on me. So the higher ups, they were kind of reluctant on what to push me to do. For example, when um, Carl first got to the unit and he took us on a first platoon run, actually, yeah, platoon run, we ran up the uh, up the mountain 
you know, no problem. I was running up. It was nice, easy pace. Then as we were running down, there's a lot of loose rocks. So I stopped and kind of walked. And he got mad. He was like, hey, Marine, I said run. I looked at him. I was like, I'm not running. I just recovered from ankle surgery. I'm not messing up my ankle anymore. And he was like, who are you talking to? I was like, I'm talking to you. I'm not running. I'm like, you're new here. Talk to my NCOs. And they will tell you that I average an 18-minute, three-mile run. I have nothing to prove to you or anybody else. I'm not messing up my ankle. And he got furious. It took a couple of NCOs. They stepped in. It's like, Newman, go. We will talk to him. And explain to him that, you know, I had ankle surgery. I've just not been able to run. They wanted, wanted me to take it easy that I do average almost a perfect PFT. Never fallen out of run. Never fallen out of hike. And he was like, but once he realized and talking to different staff NCOs and other officers that I, I was vital and the situation, he kind of understood the reason why, because he knew I wanted to go, that I had to be 100 percent, that I was not trying to be one of those Marines that kind of find an escape or a reason to get out of training. When it came to training, I did it like another situation, like all the desert training. I didn't go to CACs because I couldn't go. So everything that they did, I was back in the rear. So the, like I said, they went to cats. I didn't do. Uh, most of the field ops, I didn't do. Yes, because of my ankle surgery. So they wasn't sure if I'm going to be ready to deploy. And so, but once we got the word, I was, I was like, all right, let's go. And they said, you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. And they, of course, they had to go. I had to go get follow-ups to make sure I was cleared to train and do everything that was needed to be done. And I got okay, and we I deployed with them. You get to Kuwait. How long are you sitting out in the desert again? <sighs> so we got to Kuwait um, early February to about March 17th, per se, because we got the word on the 17th. No, 17th, 18th, that we're going. Then we go maybe about like maybe five miles from um, the LOD. And we set up kind of like a little base camp there. Uh, we get into mop level four. And we're just sitting there just waiting and waiting and waiting. Then on the 19th, went in and i mean i was scared like i didn't know what to expect like i only time in my life i really was frightened about anything and i didn't and i'm looking at people and trying to feed off other people's emotions i'm like okay are they scared you know or are they even staff the senior staff ncos i'm looking at them see how their body reacting you know, if they might have been in Desert Storm or seen some type of conflict. I'm feeding off their energy. And I'm just looking. I'm like, no one is scared. Then I just said, you know what? We got a job to do. Just do it. What was life like as a young Lance Corporal waiting in the desert for those six weeks? Boring. I mean... We found things to do, um, end up 
playing baseball, took old, dirty, sweaty, dried up socks, made a ball out of it, took a broken axe handle, bat, and we used sandbags as bases, and, which actually helped because I guess they can see the morale of everybody was kind of depleting because we were just sitting there. And it's like, okay, what's going to happen? Where are we going to go? You know, what's, what's what, you know? A buddy of mine, um, he ended up dressing up and taking different pieces of equipment from different people and became like a, we called him Rokondo because he like became like a robotic Marine. We put on like a fake TV show. Just, we found ways to entertain ourselves. So we just won't sit there and let our minds just worry about what we're doing or what's going on back home. Even in the, when we go to the field, my mindset was like, why are we still training and doing the same things that we did back in the States? It's never no way. It's never going to go the way we train. I'm like, so why do we keep doing this? I'm like, why, 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 why? It was like, Newman, just be quiet. I'm like, no, this is boring. I'm like, I want to do something. And I eventually I said, you know, screw it. In downtime, I'll be like, Act like I'm LAPD SWAT and you're just rolling around, inter- just entertaining myself. I had to do something to entertain myself so that way my mind can just stay clear. And when it's time to go, I'm ready to go. So it was some some Marines, you know, they wrote letters home or listened to music or drew pictures. You know, others they would play cards. Like I tried different things to do, and again, I was lucky enough that my best friend was there with me as well. He actually went and became a sniper. So I would go talk to him or if I see him, I'll talk to him. So that way I had someone that I knew personally from back home that I can just connect with. If I have an issues, I can always go talk to him. So that helped me out like tremendously, like having that connection with someone that I grew up with there with me. So it made things a little bit easier, but it was still tough for those six weeks. You're just sitting there waiting. When you crossed the line of departure, what was going through your head? Fear. And I was like, am I really here? Is this really happening? Like, my mind, like, because I never thought it was going to happen. I was like, it's not going to happen. You know, we don't get here. And then say, like, no, you're, nothing's going to happen. We're just going to sit here and wait. And then to really to be in it, it was just like a shock at first. Like, my, it took a while for my, this my mind and everything to actually truly understand what was really going on to hear like the gunshots shooting at us and us returning fire and being in the back of an Amtrak with, I believe because we had extra people coming out. I think we had about like 30 people in there and it's already tight enough. So it's like being in a sardine can and my seat is right next to the engine. So I'm bringing all the diesel fuel. You got people sitting on each other and all you hear is gas, 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 gas. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, I'm always trapped in this damn tin can. Now you're yelling gas. I can't get to my gas mask because someone's sitting on it. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I can't get to it. Something happens to me. You know, you know, it's not clear. But as the day went on, you know, and the firefight kind of dwindled down. It was just like training. Everything that I was preparing for just started to click in. I'm like, all right, if we have to do this, I know what I have to do. You know, once we get here, I have to exit the vehicle. I go left. Now I'm supposed to go right, line up here. This is my first uh, aiming point to provide overhead fire for a second. 
don't know, it was third platoon. So second squad, so they can go. Once they get there, I, my, I was just telling myself what I have to do in my head. So once it happened, I was ready to go. But eventually, we didn't have to do any of that. And I was switched surprisingly. You know, I'm like, all right, because I, I got to the point. I was like, all right, we don't do this. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And once we got to our the gasp where original point where we were supposed to go for our first mission, they were already on fire. <laughs> Everything that we was prepared to do, we didn't have to do. So we were trying to, you know, as an enlisted Marine, we're waiting for word from high up to come down exactly what's we're going, what we're going to do. Are we going to continue moving forward? Are we going to establish a defensive position? Yes, in case they come back and try to ambush us again. We so you know, dig your little skirmisher pit. We're going to stay here for the night and we're going to keep moving the next day. I'm like, okay. You know, I just, I just did it. You know, a lot of nights I prayed, you know, for just, not just for myself, but everybody I was with that night. I really did pray a lot. Cause I'm like, things could have really gone bad for myself and people was next to me, but you know, thank God it didn't. So that night it was kind of, it was scary, but once they got through, I was fine. Was that sequence of going through the events of what happens if you take contact? Was that going through your head through the whole move up to Baghdad? Not really. Uh, there was times where I looked at the situations. I'm like, why am I here? Like, what are we doing here? And I would question it, but then I see things and like see that they shoot on me. I'm like, okay, there's a reason why we're here. You know what? I got a job to do. I'm going to do my job. If we did have to exit the vehicle, say for a patrol, I knew in my head what I had to do while patrolling. I'm like, you know, as a machine gunner, you know, I can't do a lot of patrolling because I got this big machine gun. My primary job is just to provide cover fire. I like so, but just rehearsing the patrol, you know, I knew I'm like, okay, all avenues approach, windows, overhead, doorways. I'm looking for things that we weren't really trained for. I'm just looking for things that seemed odd, just in case. Something did happen. No, I never been to this region before. I didn't know what to expect. So I'm just trying to look at everything and just make sure I'm safe and everybody I'm with is safe. I, a lot of people I talked to, they said they kind of did the same thing. It was kind of like in the field training all over again. No, and that's what our mindset was. It was like, okay, yes, we're not engaging, but we're training still. And so we just did what we have to do. Fortunately, we didn't really see any engagement really until we got close to Baghdad. All southern Iraq was just driving, just straight, and you're sitting there and wondering, like, what's going to happen? You know, how long is this going to last? You know, just your mind just starts to think about every possible scenario and, like, is this going to be over within a couple of days? You know, you start thinking back to uh, Desert Storm. This is going to last longer. Is this going to be shorter? You know, we start thinking like oh no just think about every situation you know just communication is again to help our morale so we're not just worried about what's going to happen you mentioned as you got closer to baghdad contact starts to increase when you deploy out of the track what are you bringing with you how big is your gun team so my gun uh, a 240 gun team is a three-man team you have your team leader gunner and ammo man i was the gunner Luckily, my ammo man was my ammo man since I got to the fleet. So him and I, we, ha we knew how each other worked. There was no really teaching. 
um, my team leader. Uh, he was a uh, corporal. Him and I really didn't get a lot of work together due to the fact I didn't really do the workup before deployment. But once we got there, before we got cross LED, all the training that we did, we figured out how each other worked. So once, if we, the one time when we did, before we got to Baghdad, we had a little, it was, I won't say a little firefight, but it was a firefight. Um, the Iraqi army, it was dug in. We had to cross a bridge. And, but they were so dug in, we, they kind of were waiting for us to get there so they can ambush us and everything. So we exit the Amtrak. It's like we train. We go. So it'll be my right. We turn, mount up, and just fire movements. You know, you took, I'm up. They see me, I'm down. Engage a little bit. I'm up. I see me, I'm down. Get closer and closer and closer and closer. And as I stated earlier, this is one of those aspects of helping the Marines that are not really fit prepare for situations like this. So I didn't have a problem running, but I, there was people that couldn't keep up. So I had to slow myself down instead of getting too far ahead where my MO man or team leader couldn't catch up to me without possibly getting wounded. So it's like, okay, I'm only strong as my team. So I just work as a team and we're engaged. Since they were so dug in, um, air support was called in to take them out, which was one of the coolest things I ever seen. I didn't even hear the helicopters above. All I could see just missiles and bullets just flying. I'm like, oh man, this is cool. And then, you know, just we're still engaging. Cars was coming across the bridge. Then once that was done, I was just like, oh man, this is really what war is like. Because just hearing the bullets just fly over my head, standing and laying, I was like, there's a reason why I'm here. Like I was, I felt like I was going to get hit by like a bullet and I was end up dying or somebody else was going to get hit. But luckily that day, everybody made it back. There was no casualties or people wounded by anything. So that experience right there, just knowing again, you know, what to do, pay dividend. You know, it's like I tell people when you go to the service, all the training you do, once you see, if you see combat, it's going to be like looking at the back of your hand. You're going to know what to do without being told to do it. You just don't going to react. You know, so click in, you know how to do it, what to do, how to do it. No questions asked. And that's basically what it was like. No questions asked. All the training that we did before deploying while in Kuwait to then it was like everything was just secondhand nature. We knew what to do and how to do it. Like officers really didn't have to hold us or guide us or even staff NCOs and really had to guide us so much. They knew that the NCOs, the team leaders, squad leaders, section leaders knew that they will be able to handle situations without having direct supervision from higher ups. You mentioned the officers and the staff NCOs. How much interaction did you have with them on a daily basis? None. No interaction. Um, they left it up to the NCOs, uh, the team leaders, the squad leaders, or the section leaders. Those individuals go meet with the staff NCOs officers, get work. They come back to us, tell us what our next move is. And prepare for this, prepare for that. And that was it. You know, there was really no interaction with the staff NCOs unless something happened. And I, I didn't have any, but I knew some had to fill a billet because someone wasn't there. So they acted in a billet that really wasn't assigned to their rank. So you can be a corporal or sergeant, but you fill in a role of a staff NCO. They interacted more with the staff NCOs and officers. Um, I can hear the my the I was since I was attached to third platoon, I can hear their platoon commander, you know, communicating 
um, to the track commander and everything. And if he was talking to other officers or maybe staff and COs, really didn't have any communication with staff and COs or officers. Obviously, your team leader is a corporal. You've got a section leader, I'm assuming, that you report to that's a, a sergeant? Yes. And that was that was your immediate sense of leadership during the invasion? Yes. So, all the... So, like I said, I was attached to 3rd platoon. So, their squad leaders that were NCOs, some was even Lance Corporals. My team leader would go talk to them, but I would go with them. But that's it. Like, it's team leaders and section leaders or squad leaders. That's it. My section leader actually was my roommate the whole entire time while I was in uh, Charlie Company. So, I had a good relationship with him. He would come and tell us different. If he gets worried about something, he's like, hey, this is what's going on. He'll go back. But I was the first one. He would tell because I was his roommate the whole time. So it's kind of like, all right, you know, we don't get the information first before anybody else. There's like, how? I'm like, just don't worry about it. We don't get the information. Just leave it alone. Just, just don't say anything. Just pretend you don't know nothing. If your platoon sergeant comes, just pretend you don't know nothing. Just, just keep your mouth shut. And so like having that relationship with certain NCOs and staff NCOs, you know, it, it helped as well. But the Lance Corp underground was alive and well. Oh, yeah. It's. It's never gonna go away. It's it's never gonna go away. I mean, it's it's one of those undergrounds that it's runs so deep and it just lasts. It's I don't know what it's like now, but when I was in, it was like we got word before almost anybody else. We found a way to get information. We're sharing. It's like how did you get? I'm like got my ways. Don't worry about it. You know. So it it helped. The night before you get into Baghdad, you've stopped. You're doing maintenance on weapons, gear, self. Do you know what's about to happen? We didn't have no idea. No, they told us we had to put these like bright neon, bright neon orange um, bands around our arms and our legs and everything. I'm like, what is this for? And they basically said, just in case it's still night, if something happens, we have to exit the vehicles. You can see who's who. That's the way to distinguish ourselves because we got word that the Iraqis uh, soldiers were dressing in military uniforms as well as civilians. So they want to distinguish who was who. So that way we saw somebody in military uniform. We can, okay, they don't have this on them. They're the enemy. So that night, it was kind of like any other normal night. You know, I didn't really stress about too much. Talk talk to my uh, ammo man about what we're going to do when we get home. What's the first thing we're going to do? What we're going to eat? What do we miss? It was just like a normal routine. We didn't really want to think about what was ahead of us and worry about anything. We just wanted to live in and enjoy that moment that we had. You know, once we got in the vehicle and we drove... It was, I slept, we, it was just quiet. And then all I hear, you can hear the bullets hitting the armor on the Amtrak. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? I mean, because it was bad. It was like nothing I've, you know, I've seen in movies, but to experience it. And I'm like, and this time, like, I'm, I was ready to go. I'm like, I'm ready to go. Let's go do this. We didn't know what, what we were doing. And we didn't realize that we actually were being ambushed and we went running a gauntlet like we're in a circle for like for maybe twice and all you hear is boom contact left contact right i'm like is anybody going to shoot you know I, I was ready to mount my machine gun on top of the amtrak you know help the gunner for the amtrak shoot and but my team leader told me he's like you dropped that gun that's your ass i'm like you're right so i didn't get up i didn't you know i just we all stayed calm you know we were ready to go the track commander that was the gunner he actually was playing music over 
through the Amtrak and it was outcast bombs over Baghdad. So hearing that, you know, it kind of eased the tension a little bit because, you know, we start singing and laughing about the song and everything because we're in Baghdad and we hear bombs over the song. So it's kind of like made a serious situation not so serious to where we can relax and be able to perform our job. After you get to the palace, what happens? We got word that there's a great coordinate as a possibility where Saddam might be. So each uh, Amtrak got a coordinate and we had to patrol that area to see if we can find them or locate them. As a machine gunner, I'm not going clearing houses. I'm just outside, you know, providing cover if need so. And it was just kind of like, you know, why are we patrolling? You know, it's, I start questioning everything all over again. It was like, why are we doing this? I'm out in the open. Anybody can come from anywhere. And sure enough, it did. We get engaged and we engage back and I'm returning fire. Everybody's returning fire. Then a car drives by waving a white flag. Then right there, we have to cease fire. And I'm like, okay. And once we see fire, we're not receiving any fire anymore. We're, I'm still laying in a prone position, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then um, I believe it was either third platoon commander or it was actually our my, the company commander i'm not sh- sure who it was but they come by and said are you still being engaged no we were like no so they said machine nerves move to a better position so you can still see but you have better concealment and i'm looking i'm like there's nowhere to go there's a flipped over car but it's on the side i'm like i can get behind that but i really can't see what i'm shooting at there's a wooden table i'm like that's not gonna stop anything i'm like what the hell do they want me to do I look at my team leader and I'm like, what do you want me to do? He was like, stand up, pretend you're looking for something so they will leave us alone. And as I stand up, I reach down, I grab the handle of my 240, I turn, I take one step, then I get hit. First thing that came to my mind was those MFers shot me. And that's what I said. And all hell breaks loose after that. Like, as a, my gun is a three man, you know, it takes three people to operate it. I did everything by myself. You sat there, I just kept shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting. We're being engaged heavily. You know, they calling for the corpsman to come get me because they don't know how bad it is. I'm still engaging. There's nothing stopping me from engaging. They're pulling me by my ankles, and as they're pulling me, I'm still engaging. I had maybe about 200 rounds wrapped around my chest. So as I ran out, I'm taking breaking off, still engaging. It took my section leader to pry the guns out of my hand. And as they still pull me, I'm digging my hands into the ground because I was I was refusing medical treatment. I was like, leave me alone. I was like, give me my weapon back. Let me finish. It was like, no, we have to get you out of here. I'm like, look, take the cigarettes out this pocket, put in my other pocket, cut the pants leg off, banish me up. Let me go. There's like Newman. We have to get you out. We have to get you out. We don't know how bad it is. I said, I don't care. Let me go. Hey, finally, my the section leader, he was like, Newman, get in the damn vehicle. Whatever they have to do, do it. They come back. I'm like, all right. So I get in the vehicle and there's an AK on the bench and I just pick it up. I'm returning fire that way. I'm like, I'm not done. I'm like, these MF shot me. They tried to kill me. I lost it. If you didn't have an American uniform on, I saw red. Like there was so much anger that was in me. Then once my adrenaline wore off, the pain kicked in. And at that time, I was like, okay, what's really going on? How bad is it? I'm like, I'm panicking now. Like, I'm shaking. I didn't know what to do. I'm looking at the corner. I was like, do something. Do something. I can't stop shaking. He's like, eat something. I'm like, eat what? There's dirt. 
I'm like, do something. He's like, there's nothing I can do. And I can hear the RPGs hitting the building above, hear the explosions, hearing the bullets. And in, in my mind, yes, I'm in pain, but I'm worried about everybody else as well. I'm like, where are they? Where are they? I was like, I can't help them. And that lasted maybe a couple of minutes. They enter the vehicle all in a hurry. They get in and I'm not worried about myself. I'm just glad everybody's in there. I'm telling them, like, if you have to sit on me, sit on me. Because I'm on the center bench of the Amtrak just laying there. And it was like, no, no, I'm like, screw it. Just do it. I don't care. You know, y'all in here, just get out here. Let's get safe. Then once we get to the palace and everything's done, we're kind of unwinding everything. I'm laying on a mattress. And I was like, Newman, how's your asshole? I'm like, man, it hurts. It hurts. I said, like, I need something for it. I'm like, I can't take it no more. And the corner's like, I can't do anything for you. I'm like, you got to do something. I'm like, because this is killing me. There's like, only thing we can do is medevac you. You know, they might send you back. They might not. And I'm like, I don't care. I need something for the pain. Give me something. But that day, like, I mean, one of the angriest days and scariest experience all in one that I ever experienced. But my mentality was, again, that I had a job to do. You mentioned a Kazavak. Did you get evacuated out of the palace? Yes. I was one of the last ones to go. And here's an interesting story about that. Um, as I said, my best friend, we went to boot camp together, SOR together. He started an alpha company. Then he ended up becoming a scout sniper. So they were already established on top of the palace, providing uh, support for, you know, Metavacs to get out. So when they heard the call on the radio that I was hit, they didn't know how bad it was. Once he, you know, once they got back to stateside and everything, and he saw me, he was like, "You don't know how mad I got." He was like, "I thought you were like seriously hurt." He was like, "I just he lost it too because we're best friends." But then when they found out where I was shot at, they started laughing about it. You know, they got all the priorities out first. And you know, I was one of the last ones to go. And I, I'm able to walk with a limp to the helo, which was in the pool. So somehow the pool was drained. So they landed inside of Saddam's pool. I get on the helo. It's like, well, you need to sit down. I'm like, do you see where I'm shot at? I'm like, I cannot sit. I have to lay on my stomach. I was like, I cannot. There's like, you can't lay. And I'm like, I, I was like, I don't have a problem laying on my stomach. I was like, I've, I'm in a helo company. I've flown in these numerous hours. I don't have a problem laying. They medevaced me to like a little, a decon field hospital. They stripped me of all my clothes. They gave me a booster shot. I'm laying there waiting for the second medevac to take me to another hospital, which is maybe, maybe a half hour south of Baghdad. I get there. That's when I get my IV and stuff for the pain, uh, x-rays done, urine samples, everything to find out what's, if there's any serious issues. The morphine kicked in. I was tired. I'm like, I just want to go to sleep. That first night, it was so quiet. I, I really couldn't sleep. But when I did, like I was, I was having nightmares. And I was afraid that something was going to happen because it was too quiet. Because I was so used to hearing the gunshots and the explosions. It, I wasn't used to the quietness. So then next day, I think, I think it was a reporter or somebody. He, he's like, hey, 
Um, I have a satellite phone. Do you want to call home and notify your, your family before they get word that you're wounded and they start freaking out? That way you can call them yourself and let them know. I'm like, sure. So I called my family back here in Virginia and I spoke to my aunt who raised me and she was freaking out. Like she was like, what, what, you know, how bad is it? I'm like, look, I'm okay. It'll send me back to Kuwait. You know, I'm just letting you know that I was wounded, but I'm okay. I'm alive. She's like, well, when you get there, call me, let me know. I'm like, oh my God, I don't need you panicking while I'm here. I'm like, don't tell anybody. Don't tell my grandmother. Don't tell my brother. Don't tell my sister. Don't tell anybody. Cause I don't need them panicking. Then I'm worried about them. This stays between her and I. And then I get to Kuwait as I'm they, on the gurney. They roll me. He's the doctor. Look at me. He's like, he's too dirty. I can't see him. I'm like, what do you expect? I said, I've been in a damn desert for two and a half months. You buy you sitting here taking showers and shit. I'm dirty. I'm like, I wish I could be clean. He was like, well, let's go take a shower. I'm like, how long do I have to take a shower for? Cause the water supply I didn't want to run up all the hot water. And it's like, take as long as you want. I took maybe like an hour and a half shower because I could not get all the dirt off of me. Like as I'm sitting there, I can just see just brown, 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 brown. Then it starts getting lighter and lighter. I'm like, okay. Once it got clear, I was, I was done. I'm like, all right, I'm clean. Doctor saw me. He was like, we can't treat you here. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? He was like, we're going to send you somewhere else. We're going to send you to Italy. I'm like, okay. So I get on the the bird to go to Italy. Weather's bad in Italy. We get diverted to go to Germany. We land in Germany. They got a list of everybody that's supposed to be in Germany. My name's not on that list. So the doctor's looking at me and he's like, well, we see you in the morning. I'm like, okay. Get up that morning. I see the doctor. He's like, well, we're going to treat you here. We're going to send you back to stateside. One five comes back. You've joined them in San Diego. You don't have much longer in the Marine Corps, do you? No. Like that November, actually, <laughs> I came home on my birthday. So I only had, so they got home in May, took leave in July. So all I had was really August, four months left after everything was done. So I really didn't have much to do. But no, I still, I didn't have to go to fill the train um, as much. Um, but I, when the new Marines came in, I kind of educated them, especially the machine gunners, on what a good machine gunner should be like. Did you receive your Purple Heart and your Valor Award before you got out? I, I received them. Um, actually, there was, I got both of those maybe two weeks before I got out. I got my Purple Heart first, and I had, uh, I'm not even sure what he, well, at the time he was a major, so I had Major Worth pin that on me. Then when I got my um, Navy Combination with Combat V, I had, actually, he was a captain. At, he got promoted to Captain, Captain Gilbert, and he pinned that on me. I think this, I mean, this kind of wraps everything up. Is there anything I missed? Anything you want to cover? Well, with Carl, when he first got there, as I stated, he had a a certain attitude about him that I'm not sure how everybody else in the weapons, comp uh, weapons company felt about him. But for me, I felt he was trying to show up our previous platoon commander and prove that, you know, he's going to do things different. Like, we don't be this way. We're not going to have these issues. And I'm like, we are who we are. You know, I'm like, 
He didn't tolerate the nonsense that I dealt with. You know, if I got in trouble, he got on me. I was like, but he didn't try to go above and beyond. You know, when Carl, once he figured out, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of everybody in weapons platoon, you can start to see how that he changed his ways a little bit. He was still as tough and strict, but he realized he's like, this is who they are. I'm not going to try to change too much about them. They're, they're working well. They know their teams. They know how to do their job. He just realized now he's got to make sure they're more proficient at their job in case we have to deploy. And I encourage any junior Marine soldier, anybody that's enlisted, you know, to kind of give a new platoon commander a chance to get established before they start judging them right away. And, you know, that's what I did with them. And I was wrong about him, you know, and I saw he had my best interests. Then once I realized that, I'm like, all right, you know, I'm going to change. I didn't change directly who I was, but I kind of eased up on the little things I was doing. And which is kind of beneficial that I did that because so he saw something to me that I didn't see in myself. And I, you know, I didn't want to judge him and compare him to anybody else as well. You know, and, and I've told people that listened to the first podcast with Carl. I told him, I was like, I feel a certain type of way at first, but then listening to everything, I told all the staff and COs, and I told him, I was like, look, hearing this, I'm, I just want to say thank you for not giving up on me. I was like, because you saw something in me and the potential in me that I didn't see or recognize in myself. I was like, I just want to say thank you. And I'm, grateful that you didn't give up on me because if you did, I probably would have been kicked out and who God knows what I would have gotten into. Joe, I want to thank you for coming on and being Newman today and not Jackson. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.